founders. Welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with the founder of Home Capital, Blair Silverberg. Blair and his team bring a new age funding platform to connect companies with investors seeking upwards of $50 million. Home directly connects to over 100 SaaS data sources to build a robust picture of a company's value using AI and machine learning to identify pockets of profitability in their businesses. Home Capital is reinventing the funding process and it's growing like crazy. So Blair, thank you for being here today. Let's get right to it. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome, man. Well, tell me, how did we how did we get into this? Where where did this where did this company come from? Well, um, I think that there's a couple ways I can answer that question. I've been investing since I was 13, since I got some bar mitzvah money, and so I've been an investment nerd basically my whole life. Um, now I uh, went to college at Stanford. I studied product design there. Um, under a guy named David Kelly, who founded IDEO, which is a very well-known design firm. Stanford doesn't really have like an undergraduate business school or finance program. And so I basically learned a lot about designing products. And that naturally got me thinking quite a bit about how to redesign the investment process. And then, um, then after college, I went to uh, Draper Fisher Jurvetson, where I was at VC for five years. And really it was there that I started looking like looking for a company like Hum to fund. And you know, I was meeting with about 2000 founders per year, which wow. is like an insane volume. I'm an introvert, like an insane volume of meeting, hearing people tell their stories. And so I just had a really clear picture of how much friction there is and how much bias there is in raising capital. And I thought in a world where now about 75% of companies are running on SaaS native accounting systems and payment processors, and they've got online banking, why can't a company just click some buttons like you do in Quicken or you know, Mint.com, give investors access to financial data in these systems, have investors have a very clear picture of what's going on in the business. And then the entire investment conversation is around, hey, why is this part of the business performing like this? You know, mm. What data do we have to inform our analysis of whether or not this plan is actually gonna happen? So you could actually, if you put data at the center of these conversations, you could have investors using the fact that they see a ton of different companies and companies using the fact that they know their business really well, having that conversation that's so beautiful about uh, capitalism, because we should be basically working together yeah. to allocate our resources to, to companies and then companies using those resources wisely to build businesses that customers really care about. But in, in actuality, if you look at the $9 trillion private markets and how they operate, the vast majority of your time, like 95% of your time is figuring out which investor should I talk to? How do I get their attention? And then once you have a conversation, you know, you're guessing at what they want to see. You get no feedback. It takes six months of a, C of a CEO's time to raise capital. It's totally unpredictable. It's like going off on the Oregon Trail in the 1800s. You might like die by snake bite before you ever reach the West Coast. I mean, it's like a system that is so foreign to how we actually operate most systems today, whether it's kayak for, you know, airline tickets, 
or Uber to get from point A to point B. It's like so unusual to deal with the amount of friction that CEOs are used to dealing with every single day when they raise capital. I just thought that was a problem that we could fix. Wow. That's what we're doing. Wow. All right, I've got some questions on that, but I want to circle back to investing at 13 years old. One, what did you invest in? And two, what, why? Did, did, was that a value that was passed to you from someone or do you just uniquely started picking up on it? Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish and I, I sometimes say like our people have been investing for 5,700 years. It's kind of like in our, in our DNA, but, um, but no, I mean like this, so this book, I mean, your listeners probably can't see this, but um, somehow when I was uh, very He's young- He's holding a book of security, security analysis. By Benjamin Graham. Okay. Uh, somehow when I was very young, I think like my great aunt gave me one share of IBM when I was born and IBM uh, split like eight times by the time I was like 12 or 13. And so I was like, Aunt Ellen was so nice to give me like $10,000 of IBM. Like that's a huge gift to give a baby. Yeah. And, you know, my parents taught me like, no, it's not that she gave you $10,000. She bought you like a $50 share and it split a bunch of times and the price appreciated. And I just thought that was like the coolest thing. Um, so for some reason I started reading uh, really simple investment books. Like, you know, I don't know, rich dad, poor dad, or like, how to get rich. And it probably had some big, you know, golden copy or, or uh, cover on it or something like that. But then I sort of graduated to like real investment books, like mm. Benjamin Graham and Philip Fisher and John Burr Williams and, um, you know, all of the Warren Buffett letters back to like the fifties. Um, so I just got really into this idea that like, um, you know, uh, if you, if you train yourself to be patient and have discipline, uh, you can find opportunities to invest and you're supposed to do the opposite of, the, of what the market's doing. Be grieved when others are fearful, be fearful when others are greedy. I just thought it was like the most interesting idea that you could kind of trust your intellect. Yeah. Knowledge. Um, Have you found that mostly to be true in execution? That, that, that idea of the be greedy when other people are fearful and be fearful when other people are greedy? Oh man, so I know, I know that you're a coach and I think this is like one of the most, um, interesting parts of my journey that I've, I've had to go through the investor mind as you train it and you learn to be a contrarian and go against the crowd can be a really difficult mind to transform into a leader. Mm. And so I sometimes think that there's two there that you confuse them. They're really the same thing, but like you start out and they're two very different things. So like when I'm decision-making, when I'm trying to figure out like, Hey, do we pour the gas into, you know, marketing this particular thing? Or do we buy this business? Do we stand up this line of business? I'm using my investor brain and I'm thinking about what's the right decision, regardless of what, you know, everybody else is saying, cut out the noise, just get to the truth. Now, when I'm creating alignment on the team to actually do those things, then I totally flip into leadership. <laughs> and then it's like, it doesn't matter what the right answer is. What matters is that it makes sense to people that they have their fingerprint on the yes. process. They actually enroll Feel in the connected, process. Yeah. Yeah, but when you're an investor, like sitting in front of your Bloomberg, you don't need to do that second piece. It's only when you're uh, allocating capital through a business that you're operating yeah. to do both pieces, which is really hard. Well, this is where we can help each other. So I'm good at that part. I'm good at that that leadership part and whatever. I've made it my goal this year to get better at investing. Like it's just not a part of my background. It's not a part of my growing up, what my family valued, any of that kind of stuff. So it just literally feels like a foreign concept to me, you know? And so I've just bought some books. I'm, I'm like, I get basic understanding of stuff, but that's why it's so fascinating to me. I'm, I, I was genuinely asking, it wasn't a leading question. Like, have you found that to be true? That you, you kind of, for the most part, approach the market a little bit more contrarian? 
Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And there's some places like I was a venture capitalist in general as a VC. Um, most VCs don't want to be contrarian because when you do something that's contrarian, by definition, most people think it's a bad idea. Right. If you end up being right, what's awesome about that is it was mispriced. You like you know were buying five dollars for twenty cents, and everyone just thought you, that you were an idiot. They thought you were buying five dollars for you know seven dollars. Um, but when you need to have your companies get funded round after round after round, investing in really contrarian things can be difficult. But in the public markets, it's just all about finding a bargain. And even in the private markets, like I worked very closely with a guy named Steve Jurvetson, who's our largest investor. I mean, he's a pretty contrarian guy, like the back Tesla back in, you know, what, 2006, like the back SpaceX in the early days before they had a rocket launch. I mean, being a contrarian thinker is very, very useful. You just have to kind of think about, um, where to apply it and the risks of thinking that way. Yeah, leads me with with Elon in particular. Is there something to betting on the jockey, or is that dumb investing? Like, no. So I mean, in, in venture, I mean, it kind of depends on what you're doing. In venture, it's really important to back people who can raise more money, unless you're backing them at the very last round, which essentially never happens. Like they're already public by that point in time. So a founder's ability to raise money is really important. Um, it turns out if you're good at raising money, you're also pretty good at recruiting in general. Yeah. So now you've got a founder who can raise money and build a team. So if you have enough money and you have a strong enough team, you'll eventually figure out how to build a great business. Yeah. So yeah. I think betting on the jockey really important in venture and in general in the private markets. You know, in the public markets, I always like to say that um, everyone knows who Warren Buffett is. Like. Berkshire Hathaway, they, they talk every year um, as he's getting older about like what's going to happen to Berkshire Hathaway, this $300 billion company when Warren Buffett passes away, like as if it's going to go out of business tomorrow. Yeah, it's already its own. It's already its own thing. It is. But like there's so much key man risk, whereas um, the, 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 the CME, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange is a gigantic huh. financial business. It's like, I don't know what it is. These say $60, $80 billion market cap. No one has any idea who the CEO is. I should know who the CEO is. No I idea. See what you're I have saying. no idea. Because it's a business that runs itself. Um, obviously, it doesn't. There's people working really hard on that business. But, but functionally, it's got a strong network effect. It's a business with uh, relatively less key man risk. So like backing the jockey in a business that's more mature is a lot less important than picking a business that actually has staying power, typically via network effects, sometimes via brand or via scale. Got it. Totally makes sense. So let's go back to, to you. You became a founder, right? So that's the fun part. You, you stepped into the entrepreneurial seat, had a big idea. It always starts off with the assumption or the big idea. Hey, I think this market is missing this. What did it look like to take it from observation and idea to starting to implement it and see if it was going to work? Yeah, I mean, it's a totally... Uh, different shift. So I got, I got to that, that part of conviction where I was like, all right, I'm meeting with 2000 companies a year. I see entrepreneurs taking on more friction than like people take on any other part of their life to solve the most important thing in business, which is making sure that you have enough funding to, to stay alive and execute on your plans. Um, meanwhile, SaaS systems of record, you know, 75% of companies are using these things. And so all of the data is in the cloud. So that was the thesis building. I was like, okay, there is a great business to be built here. Mm. It could disrupt Goldman Sachs. It could be you know, Blackstone 2.0. There's some business here that can automatically take company data, understand the value of companies, 
and um, get them the financing that they need. Then, you know, I, I looked for a while for that business um, to fund. And what I found is I just was, I was like literally seeing nobody do this. And the reason is that it's very hard to get sophisticated um, financial minds working hand in hand, like with an equal 50-50 culture with the kind of Silicon Valley software engineers that build great user experiences. So I would either see companies that were a little bit too financial. It's like, there's a bunch of finance guys that have kind of built a website where they're originating loans, but like, there's no real technology here. Or companies that were too technical. Like, okay, there's beautiful technology here, but uh, there's basic mistakes being made in how the company's actually lending money or investing money in companies. So I, I saw it as this kind of cultural problem um, that the market wasn't going to solve on its own. And that got me to the level of conviction I needed to start the business myself. Because I was like, I, I, you know, I've seen enough as an investor to have conviction that this is something that, that will work and that the market needs. Um, I completely understand the cultural reason the market's not producing this business for me to invest in. And so I decided to, to found it myself. And that's where I shifted completely into this kind of leadership mode. So I got an executive coach basically from the beginning of the business to learn how to lead a team uh, and build a team of, of people. Um, and, you know, from there, I mean, we'll go into it in, in detail, but I mean, it's been all about um, taking that initial thesis, which really has not changed since like, you know, call it 2016. Um, but simplifying it and distilling it and getting it to a place where my team understands it and then takes ownership of it and then actually surpasses what I ever could have done on my own. And that I think is the part that as an investor, um, people undervalue just how much work and complexity and leadership goes into building a great business. Um, You just think that once you see the thesis, you make the investment and you go on and you make more investments, but it's the whole other side of the story that's been awesome for me to experience. Yeah. Uh, the founder. What did it take to get off the ground? Oh Lord. Um, <laughs> a lot of grit and tenacity. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, I spent, I'm mean, have a long, long story. I'll really summarize, but like I spent a few years after I had the, the thesis down, you know, talking to people, recruiting, trying to raise money. And it was really difficult because I think on the surface, what we're doing looks like you know, there's a bunch of fintech companies and, you know, it seems like other people might be doing this. Like, it's a thesis really to just like apply software to valuing companies better than all the people who've tried it before, right. or like smarter about it. It's like, that, this isn't a, a thesis. So, um, which really like, that's our core thesis. That's, that's it. It's like, you know, when Blackstone started in 1987 and they've exponentially grown their assets now over $700 billion for almost 30 years. It's like, they were just like every other private equity firm too. It's just, they did it better, you know, in a more nuanced way with a more sophisticated strategy with more tenacity. Um, so, I mean, it was, it was tough to get going. I think what ended up happening is um, I recruited my two co-founders, a CTO um, named Chris Olivares and then uh Chaba Konkoli, who was our president. Chaba had run hedge funds for 20 years. Chris had been the um, first engineer at an ed tech company in, um, in San Francisco that had a lot of success. And so once I had that kind of core team and we could play off of each other and you know, motivate each other and focus each other, that's where we started to pick up momentum. And um, you know, from there, we basically raised $5 million of venture and then $9 million of venture and then a little bit north of $20 million of venture and have kind of built the team and the business and the moment wow. has just been picking up uh, consistently ever since then. What made those 
those two people, what do you think? I know you don't know for sure, but what's your guess? What made those two people buy in on this idea or buy in on you? Well, so Chris and I have been friends for a long time uh, from college, and he was kind of at a place in his life where um, he was ready to do something different. And I just walked him through the thesis. I was like, I'm going to take you to New York and introduce you to a bunch of my friends and investment firms and investment banks. And like, you're going to see what they do manually. And then you're a technologist, you know, all of this data is in the cloud. And you're going to be able to basically see like this manual way of understanding businesses makes no sense, which I took him to do that over a period of a couple months. And he like completely got it. And he was like, okay, yeah, this makes a ton of sense. Chaba, on the other hand, um, I think, you know, Chaba had been investing in the public markets for 20 years in front of a Bloomberg. Um, he ran different strategies, but he's uh, originally Hungarian and just has a very interesting kind of investment history. And I think he was thinking like, because he had moved into investing more in private companies, um, why isn't there a Bloomberg for the private markets? Like as an investor, you just want to see all of the companies, pick the ones that resonate with you the most. Like, why does this not exist in the $9 trillion marketplace? Um, so I think it was both of them, they were just at a place in their life. Uh, and I showed them some some kind of details around the thesis and they're just like, okay, I get this. So it took me a, yeah. a little while to find them and get them to the place in their life where they're ready to take the leap. But once I found them, it went pretty quickly. I love that. I mean, how brilliant for you to not just tell your friend about this, but to let him see. I think that is that is fantastic. You gave him a few months for him to like really see the obvious that you had seen over a few years and let his technological brain start to make its connections that, yeah, they don't need to do that manually. Like we could just create this thing and it would automatically populate it for them. That is so smart. Um, just to finish my understanding of, of the idea or the thesis of the company, are people using your SaaS product to take to investors that they find themselves or are they connecting to investors also through home? It's a great question. So think of us like kayak for capital. So companies come to us and they say, I need capital. You know, I'm going to run out of it in a month. Or they say, I'm really crushing it. I think my business can take on more capital to go faster. So there's a couple different reasons why a company might raise capital. But they come to us and say, I need to raise capital. And so what we do is we plug into their accounting system, their payment processor. Um, you know, we've got, got SOC 2 security. We've, we've, you know, it's very similar to sharing um, data via a data room. So like every business in the world uses a Dropbox or box. It's just kind of the same idea. Um, but the difference is when the data gets connected to HUM, we actually understand what it means. So we can do a cohort analysis on the payment processor data and say, oh my God, this business on the income statement doesn't look that efficient. It's like, it's losing money, you know, growth and sales marketing spend are volatile, but under the hood, like if you look at the business at the level of each customer coming into the business, it's wildly efficient. This will be obvious in the income statement in six months, but it's not obvious to anybody right now. Wow. Um, so these are the kinds of things that we do, uh, analyzing businesses from these, these different systems that we use. And then what happens is we just act as a marketplace. So a company says, you know, we'll give them an op a set of options. We'll say, hey, you know, you're going to be eligible, you know, from the global capital marketplace for equity and debt. And here are the common structures. And here's what the pricing is likely to be. And by the way, like here's a graph that shows what it looks like in your business. So if you were to take on this debt, you know, your revenue would have to go down this much to not pay it back, but there's no dilution. So you're going to take on a little bit of risk, but it feels very comfortable. 
Um, if you take on equity, there's there's very little risk. Your revenue can go to zero. You're still going to own your business, but you know the dilution is permanent. So we give them those options. Wow. Companies will say, okay, I want to go down the debt path, and then we very much act like um, uh, just a marketplace. And so you know, twenty lenders will compete for the the company's business, and that includes large uh, venture lenders, who are banks, funds, family offices. I mean. Every investor on the, the system has more than a billion dollars in assets under management. So they're all institutional investors, but we're connecting people to sometimes the direct source of balance sheet, like an insurance company or a sovereign wealth fund. And sometimes it's a manager of somebody else's balance sheet, like a fund. Freaking fascinating. I mean, even the, even the clarity that you are able to give people both on what is like, is, is, do I have a good investable business or not? Then you're letting them know the different options. So they don't get bullied into a position they regret. Like I love Shark Tank. I also get very anxious for the people on Shark Tank. Yes. I'm like, dude, you just got forced in like 30 seconds to make a decision. Did you really want to give up that much equity? Like, was that really the right play? You know. And so it sounds like you guys do a great job of educating people on their options. Yeah, I mean, the the hardest thing for me when I was a VC, um, and you know, people love to hate on VCs. I think like VCs are the engine that funds companies from scratch, turning them into real businesses. And so the, the numbers kind of speak for themselves. You look at like the market cap of businesses today that were venture back. I mean, the venture ecosystem is this incredible force for innovation and, and good, but the process of raising venture money feels like going in Shark Tank for 98% of entrepreneurs. Yes. Now, if you're like a repeat or a three-peat entrepreneur and you worked with a great venture investor in the past and you just go back to them, it's a pretty seamless process. But most of the time, you know, you're shaking the trees to figure out who to meet. You may meet the wrong person at the right venture firm and your deal goes nowhere. You know, yeah. there are so many details you have to get right. And then the hardest thing for me when I was a VC is um, there's just not time in the day when you're meeting with 2000 companies a year to give thoughtful feedback. So I would have loved nothing more than to have an extra 2000 you know, hours a year to work where I could write every single company a letter and say like, or an email and say, hey, this is what I liked about your business. This is why I ultimately passed on the business. If you change this and this, please come back to me. Like that would be awesome. But no VC does that, myself included, because there's just not time in the day. Right. And so what's interesting about a system like Hum is we literally benchmark every company to each other. And so we don't show, you know, companies each other's names, but we show like distributions and comps. And so we can say, look, you know, your sales and marketing efficiency is in the 25th percentile of your industry. That's unfortunately not good enough to unlock the kind of equity investment that you want. Now, if you get it to the 75th percentile, which is possible because there's other public and private companies in our system who have done so, then you can unlock this investment. So what you should do, you know, raise a little bit of capital now, so that you have a buffer, but then really focus on efficient sales and marketing growth and, you know, shift from whatever technique you're using now, like online ads to maybe product led growth. You know, it's very tactical feedback wow. automated. It applies to all companies. So you're never going to come to hum and in that process, having no idea where you stand, you're actually going to see where you rank on the various factors in your business, you know, your gross margin, your sales and marketing efficiency, your revenue growth, your, the way you've constructed your balance sheet in terms of net current assets, um, all of the ratios that matter in your business, you're just literally going to see how you stack up to about 4,000 uh, private companies on home, but also um, the entire public markets because we have public company data in the system as well. 
Well done, man. Holy shit. What a, what a fantastic idea. Um, and execution. That's, that's where my question goes next is, you know, we have a lot of people listening that are both founders of current companies, but they're probably, a lot of them are probably still struggling to get beyond that early stage of solidifying this is really working and growing and scaling it. Others are at the earlier stage where they got the idea and they're starting to execute on it, but maybe it's a one, two, three, four person shop, you know? And so I always like to ask, in your mind, whether you're thinking about your business and why it was successful or other businesses that you've been a part of investing in so many of them outside of the idea, like we all get, we all gravitate to the idea. Of course, the idea has to be good. Of course, the idea has to work outside of the idea. Is there any main thing you would point to that you think causes certain companies to succeed where others fail? Um, I mean, there's, there's so many details to getting this right, but I think like broad strokes. So if you have a good idea, um, all you need is time and capital. Hmm. It's kind of that simple. So <laughs> the unifying thing that gets you time and capital is, is grit and tenacity. Like just, just preparing your mind. And I remember before starting my business, cause I just knew how many no's founders got like preparing your mind to get told no all day, every day for years. That's very hard for people to do, but I mean, yeah. you go recruit, no, you know, I don't want to work for your company. You go raise capital. No, you know, this isn't for me. So you're going to get no all the time. And you have to almost, I mean, I think there's probably different ways to do this. But for me, like I, I kind of taught myself to think of it as a game. Like no's in the beginning didn't hurt. And to this day, don't hurt at all. I just think of it as a game. It's like, oh, okay. so can I convert this no to a yes? Uh, or should I go like bark up another tree and get to a yes faster? It's just like a kind of, it's just like a game. It's just like if you you know, miss a shot in basketball. You're like, oh, I'll just take another shot. Like it's not painful. And I think you've got to find a way to get um, comfortable uh, taking all of the no's because the, the thing that gave me that kind of confidence having been a VC is I just saw what other companies were dealing with. I saw how, how many companies came into me and I can give you a ton of, <laughs> ton of names in private, but companies that came to me where it was like, I'm kind of on my last rope, like, I'm having a really tough time raising money. And some of these companies today are public companies worth wow. $30 billion. And it's like, I remember when the founder, when everyone had told the founder no. And so it's just normal. It doesn't, there's no such thing as you start a company and you just hear a bunch of yeses. And that yeah. includes early employees. It's really hard to recruit, raising capital, you know, getting early partners. I mean, I always think of the, the crypto companies that like couldn't get bank accounts. I mean, you know, the whole world is set up to tell you, you can't start a business. And the only thing you can control in that equation is your mental toughness to know that, no, I am gonna start a business and I'm gonna stick with it as long as it takes. So I think Have that's you, the most important thing to control or to do when you first set out. It definitely is the toughest. That's why my, curi my curiosity is, have you always kind of naturally felt, thought and felt that way about no's, about missing shots, or was that a learned kind of practice to get more comfortable with it? Oh, no, no, it was learned. I mean, so I, I you know, my, my uh, grandmother narrowly escaped the Holocaust. Like, you know, my, my kind of upbringing was like, don't take too much risk. We're lucky to be here, mm. you know, just survive. So to prepare myself to start a business, actually, I have an amazing personal therapist. I spent a lot of time, like years talking with her about overcoming the feel of, of failure, the, uh, wow. the fear of failure. And, um, getting to a place where I could feel comfortable that, you know, what I do every day 
the experience I'm having, like, is the point. It's not the outcome, you know, at the end of some journey. It's not starting a successful company. It's like actually just the rush of like problem solving every day. When something bad happens, you know, it's not fun, but it's, if you think about it in the right way, it's just a problem that you can solve. It's like a new challenge. Um, so for me, it was a few years of like learning to think that way. And there were, you know, there are good books that I read too, kind of along the path. And like, you know, I don't think getting a therapist is the only option, but for me, it's a hundred percent learned. Like I had yeah. zero grit before, before I went down that path. Yeah. And now I think I have pretty, pretty high grit. Hell yeah. Well, I'll just say, you know, I'm a personal, a, a professional coach and I have a therapist. I, I just, I don't, I haven't met a human being yet that wouldn't benefit from a great therapist. And yeah, so, you can't steal your blind spots. It's impossible. No, dude. And you can't, I, what I was telling my therapist when we started working together a little while ago is I can't keep coaching myself. Yeah. Like, because I need an outside voice to either challenge something or to affirm something. And it adds weight that you can't always carry just for yourself, you know? Yeah. And so I'm curious, I love that you, that you brought that up. Um, what were some of the things that you found to be particularly helpful in getting traction with that? Like, you know, okay, I've got this fear of failure. I'm starting to see it makes sense. I came from this background, but I'm attracted to this. And so I got to get comfortable, you know, with failure or, or whatever. Were there any simple, you know, practices or thoughts you really grabbed a hold of that seemed to help you over time get traction with that? Yeah. I mean, for me, for me, like, uh, I didn't find this one in the book or anything. I just kind of, you know, experimented, but I mean, I would just wake up every day when I was, when I was starting the business in the beginning and just say like, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Like I am an entrepreneur today, right now. And so all day I'm going to be an entrepreneur no matter what happens. And like, I feel lucky for that. Mm. Um, so it's just sort of like literally saying to myself, like in my, you know, mental voice, like I'm really thankful for this day where I get to be an entrepreneur all day. Cool. And I would just say that to myself every day. And you know, it starts to get some traction as you do it. So like, I remember in the early days, like, you know, my, my co-founder and I woke up at like four in the morning to catch a flight or something. And he was like exhausted. And I was like, isn't this fun? And he's like, you're an idiot. <laughs> oh, this isn't fun. But like, you start to like feed off of yourself. And I think like, you know, of course, like you don't want to just compartmentalize and just kind of tell yourself this little lie, you know, fake it until you make it style. Um, you need to like process everything going on in your life. But I think that it's kind of remarkable how much momentum you can get from just telling yourself every day, like, I appreciate this day. Yeah. Doing that day after day after day. And for me, I mean, that's what got me through years of, you know, very difficult kind of early, early founding. Um, I freaking love that. Yes, man. I'm a huge proponent of believing people can change and, in, and, and really believing the way we think can change. And we mostly give up on it too early. I have a friend uh, who's a musician, and he has this one line in a song. Actually, it's so funny. He's a musician, and he's a part of a hedge fund. He's, oh, nice. He has this kind of dual life, uh, <laughs> successful in both. But he has this one line in a song that says, uh, whatever we water will grow, so let's grow something beautiful. And he was talking about thoughts, thoughts as being like seeds. And if we, if we intentionally focus on something, we water it, right? Yeah. So he's like, as long as we're growing shit, we might as well grow something beautiful. You yeah. know, grow joy, grow peace, grow confidence. And what you notice is like the seed, the first month of watering it, there's no tangible results. You don't, the first month of you saying, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm so thankful to be here, you don't feel right. magically different. 
Right. But over time, if you keep doing that, you're like, I do feel pretty grateful. Yeah. Oh, I am kind of, a, you know, I do have a different perspective now at four in the morning. They're like, cool, we get to go on this trip because we're in this position. And I'm like, we just can't give up on it when you're making one of those almost like psychological switches. Like, oh, I'm learning not to be anxious or I'm not learning to be afraid. Well, the truth takes time to sink in. Yeah. You've got to keep choosing to see it that way and choosing to think that way until it starts to become actually built into the neural network. And you're like, oh, this kind of is just how I see it now. Yeah, 100%. Right? hundred percent. Yeah. And that, I think the other thing is like, there's plenty of time to worry and be anxious about the future, but like, there's no reason, like just being conscious of when you're choosing to have those thoughts. Like there's no reason I have to stress about my future. Like at 7am this morning, like I can just do what I'm doing at 7am. Like I'll have plenty of time at like 9pm before I go to bed or whatever. Like, yeah. So like, starting to learn that like, you can, you, you can't choose the thoughts that come up in the moment, but you can choose when you're going to invest the time and sort of yes. focus on them. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, I, so I got a question for, for the people listening, myself included. Um, when you hear no, how do you decide whether you're hearing no because your idea sucks or you're hearing no because you haven't talked to the right person yet? Yeah, so that's, you know, you want to make sure your idea doesn't suck. Like the, the no's can be really valuable. Like I'm not saying just ignore every no, but totally. I think that what I try to do is I try to always hear the no and hear the reason behind the no, but I've gotten so many no's over the years that I can hear when the reason is like, I haven't thought hard about this myself and I don't want to talk about it anymore. Or like, Hey, I'm really busy. I guess something else to do. Or like, Hey, this actually kind of threatens me like the job uh, in my position, which is a big deal when you're, when you're starting a new company, if there's an element of it that's disruptive. Um, so I think, you know, I've just practiced diagnosing the reason for the no. Now, if the no is anything other than like, that's really useful information I've never heard before. Then my next step is I just kind of laugh. I don't laugh to the person's face in like a mean way, but I laugh to myself. I'm like, I've heard that before. There's so many no's <laughs> that turned yes. into, yeah, into yeses. There's investors at our cap table who are no's, you know, five times in a row and now they're invested with us. Like that happens all the time. Um, and people don't care. Like they end up, you know, supporting each other. And it's like a no can turn to a yes. You know, a yes can turn to a no. Like, so I just don't kind of have too much of an attachment to it. I just kind of think it's fun or funny. And then, um, you know, I try to do the prioritization of like, you know, is this no going to take three man weeks to turn to a yes? And this no is going to take 30 man minutes to turn to a yes. You know, I try to like prioritize the effort. Interesting. But I've never heard of that before. That's that really uh, intelligent. So you're, you're literally calculating. It's obviously a guess, but you're probably pretty accurate in terms of how far away is this no from a yes versus a different no might only be a few objections away from a yes. hundred percent. Yeah. And in investors, there's a great way to kind of think about this. Like an investor that says no will turn to a yes when their competitor invests in you. So basically like you can just know, like, you know, almost hundred percent of the time, like this, no, it's going to be like an infinite amount of time to turn it to a yes. Unless I get their competitor or someone that they want to do deals with to give me a term sheet. And then, you know, I march back over there and it's all of a sudden magically yes again. So now I'm smart. Um, so there's little hacks like this too, where like, you know, therefore, like you shouldn't spend a ton of time convincing an investor why they didn't get your business. You should just find out who their competitors are and get offers from them. And then go back to that investor and be like, you know, hey, I really enjoyed talking to you. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't think we met under the best circumstances, but we'd love to spend a little bit more time together. And by the way, you know, there's a lot of traction in the business right now. And like, 
you'd be amazed at how many times the no turns to a yes. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, though, uh, what you're doing with Hum is removing a lot of the stuff we're talking about. Like, you're able to give investors so much visibility and data, because often I would imagine where these no's were coming from was a misarticulation of the idea, a rambling, here's what I have, and I'm trying to tell it to you, but it's leaving out information, and they're skeptical, and they don't understand the context of why that number is so low, or whatever and you guys are kind of taking out a lot of that friction right yeah yeah 100 i mean like i always i always uh i always mentioned sarah blakely the the founder of Spanx in this situation yeah. like when i was a vc i would see pitches sometimes where the product was clearly working like if you really focused on the metrics and the numbers it's like oh yeah people love this product it makes total sense but you're not the customer and sometimes like for me i'm a i'm a man like i generally wasn't the customer for something like Spanx. So I totally understand why Sarah Blakely spent years toiling, you know, basically in her basement to make Spanx a business. But had you looked at the data, like she should have gotten funded in five minutes. So, you know, you've got to be able to put data at the center of the conversation. And then what ends up happening is it's just all about the results. And, you know, there is a little bit of nuance to that, like a new business with very limited data you know, the wrong data point to focus on is like monthly revenue, but the right data point to focus on might be like monthly leads and Salesforce. Um, so, you know, there's a little bit of intelligence around what you focus on, but in general, if you focus on the facts on the ground, you can pretty quickly get to a place where an investor appreciates the effort that you're putting in and the results that's creating. Uh, and the conversation is all about like, all right, here's what you've got. How do we make it better? How do we deploy the capital wisely? And then you're absolutely right. Like the conversation's a lot more constructive than that song and dance to get attention in the first place, which is unfortunately yeah. kind of the, the vast majority of investor company conversations today. Wow. All right, let's change gears just a little bit because it's no small feat that you've not just got this idea off the ground and connected investors with, with companies seeking investment, but you've also built a team uh, close to 70 people. Uh, oh, what has that process been like? Recruiting, hiring, organizing teams, all that kind of stuff. What's that been like for you personally? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's been like 98% of where the effort's gone. Um, so kind of switching from investor brain to operator brain, you know, yeah. once you have a good enough thesis, like the vast majority of your time is going to go to building a team that buys into that thesis, owns that thesis, and then surpasses what you could ever do, um, building, building that out yourself. Um, so that's like where all the time and, and effort's gone. Um, you know, I think for me, like we've, we've also made a lot of mistakes too. So it's not all kind of up into the right, but I think in the, you know, in the early days, you're trying to find, um, call it like five other co-founders, like five people who are like, I get this, I'm on board, I can do everything. Um, you know, I don't, I don't even care like what my title is. I just like want to get in there, get my hands dirty, write code, yep. you know, build a business, create that momentum you know, there are people who are very creative. Uh, they're, they're definitely inventors. And there's like a, there's like a, you know, a community of these people that move from five person company to five person company. Um, so we were very fortunate to find a few of these people in the early days. Um, and that's like one team, like one five person team. What then starts to happen is you just multiply teams, but <laughs> they also specialize. Yeah. So you know, pretty early on, we hired a full-time recruiter, um, a lady named Alyssa, who now has a, a different role, but she's like just incredibly instrumental. Um, I think she was maybe the 10th person that we hired to thinking about like, 
which teams do we need? How many people should be on each? How do we make a recruiting process that's repeatable with funnel metrics that we can manage to, to make it all predictable? Um, so, I mean, people do it different ways, but I think for us, like very early on, we, we had a pretty structured recruiting process, um, you know, tests that software engineers and data scientists would take, projects that salespeople would do before they were hired, um, where we could sort of systematize um, the hiring process. Um, and those are all kind of tactics. And then I think the other thing that's just really important, and it, it, it sort of depends on your um, ambition and you know how big you want the company to be. Um, but for us, like, you know, I'm I'm basically doing this to remove bias and corruption from capital allocation, which to me feels like as important as curing cancer or sending people to Mars. Um, so I really believe, like, you know, thoroughly that what we're doing every day it's a gift to be able to do this work, and it's really important. So if you believe that, it's a lot easier to sell people to join your business because they feel that enthusiasm. And I always wonder like, you know, with businesses that have less um, clearly articulated ambitions, like it can be really hard to be like, you know, come join me as a controller for my widget manufacturer. But even the widget manufacturer should come up with some, you know, real meaning because every business that has happy customers is producing real value for our society. And if we yeah. can get rid of all of the WeWorks and the Theranoses and just have like the humble widget manufacturer with happy customers, you know, our GDP could grow like twice as fast. We could alleviate poverty twice as fast. It's like, we're all playing this super important role in our economy to allocate our resources wisely. And I think it's just worth spending the time to dig deep and figure out like, what is that meaning in your business that gets you up every morning and make sure yeah. hire people, they feel that same excitement and enthusiasm i want to come back to that the eliminating the the kind of injustice in, in the the world you're playing in but before that you mentioned theranos and i just would love to get your your brief thoughts as a person that from the vc kind of world how did you watch like from your perspective what are you thinking as you watch that company roll out and then as you watch the scandal like from your perspective what are you thinking well, so, uh, yeah, so uh, my old boss, Tim Draper, like, was the first investor in Theranos, and um, I kind of saw it from an interesting spot. Also, my Aunt Ellen, who I mentioned earlier, um, invested in Theranos. She's a, a therapist in Palo Alto, and um, she's actually quoted in the Bad Blood book. They mentioned retired Palo Alto therapist. That's my aunt. <laughs> um, but, um, but, no, I mean, I think, like, you know, the best way I've thought about wrapping my head around this because it's obviously you know terrible for patients who got faulty test results it's terrible for investors who lost I don't know what the total is like four billion dollars yeah their investment including my aunt um, I think that it just highlights how important the conversation between investor and company is like if you're if you're building a company like you've got to survive you know if I'm if I were in in the founder of Theranos's shoes I'd be thinking like you know, I need one more inning to make this technology work. Like you're in survival mode. That left unchecked can waste a lot of society's resources. Yes. So investors play a really important role. They're thinking, hey, I'm going to part with my resources, give them to you, prove to me you're going to use them wisely. And it's that back and forth between these two stakeholders in our economy that makes Google happen and Facebook happen and you know, all the beautiful kind of technologies, Tesla happen. 
Yeah. And when one of those sides is left unchecked or goes off the rails, that's when you get problems. And I think that Theranos investors just didn't scrutinize the company enough. Like there were no real biotech investors in Theranos. Yep. Therefore, there was no one with actual kind of on, on the ground kind of tactical expertise to say like, is this technology working? Everyone was just looking at each other saying, yep. well, that's smart guys in, so I'm going to go in too. And I think that's where you get real capital misallocation. Yeah. And of course, if data were in the center of that and it weren't, you know, the circular kind of logic, that problem wouldn't have happened. So that's why I think as a society, it's just so important to put data in the center of our capital allocation conversations. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard one kind of Silicon Valley investor saying, we keep getting a bad rap for this, but none of us invested in this. Like it was people that didn't have a specific, that didn't have like a specific background in biotech or whatever that were investing in this and all saw... Well, I respect that person, so I'm in. He's like, we weren't looking. We didn't have anything to go on. There was no evidence that would make me invest in this place. And I even heard one person that got interviewed by her uh, who was supposed to be like head of product development or something and wasn't even allowed to look inside the box. Yeah. And she was like, he was like, what do you mean? Like, let me take a peek. at And she, he's like, I've signed the NDAs, all that stuff. And she's like, no, you can't. He's like, well, then I'm not working for you. <laughs> like, right. if, I can't, if I can't see the thing you want me to like build, like, I'm not doing it. Um, uh, last question, we'll get off this. Again, this is total opinion. In your opinion, do you think she was trying to mislead people and bamboozle or was genuinely hopeful I'm one you know, problem solve away from getting this off the ground and I'm just faking it till I can get this thing to work? Like, Do you think she was genuinely think this is going to work and just played the game too long or was actually trying to mislead and bamboozle people? I, I have no idea how to answer that, but I do know that you know, entrepreneurs that are working hard to make their business work, like they fully drink the Kool-Aid. So like, I think it's very normal. I mean, people used to talk about Steve Jobs having a um, reality distortion field. Sure, sure. Very normal to just truly believe that what you're doing is going to work if you just have the time and the resources. Yeah. That's why companies have boards and investors. And so, you know, I think that, um, you know. That was my feeling after watching the documentary, which again, every documentary has got an angle. And so I don't know if they're trying to or not, but like, my feeling was, you know, I genuinely think this person thought it was going to work. Now, yeah. they did unethical stuff. They weren't being truthful. They were, you know, she all the stuff she got in trouble for. Yeah. But I think she thought this was going to work, which is different than, like, I've got everybody fooled and I know it, yes. you know? Totally. Um, so that's my, maybe I'm an optimist and I'm just hopeful. I'm like, I hope that she at least thought it was going to work, you know? Um, totally. Totally. Just, now, like Ber Bernie Madoff probably thought it was going to work too. So, like, I don't, I don't know that. Uh, that's true. <laughs> not that's everybody true. is so hopeful, but I think like. <laughs> In a, yeah, in a technology business, like, you know, really like every, every new experiment you run, every new time you push code, like things can get better. So I think that, that optimism is sort of baked into the. Yeah. Well, let's get back to your passion and then we'll, we'll, we'll finish with the lightning round questions. Um, when you talk about really uh, solving or, or helping get rid of the injustice in, 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 in this kind of raising capital field where my brain went. So tell me if this is what you meant is kind of like uh, the voice where the idea was, hey, how do we eliminate the bias of, you know, how cute the girl is in front of me or whatever, and let me just hear the voice, you know? Um, is it very similar where it doesn't rely as much on the the entrepreneur or the, the founder's charisma to sell you and all that stuff and let them just look at the data? Is that what you yeah, mean by removing much. some bias and stuff? Yeah, that's that's a beautiful way to think about it. Yeah, I mean, like, companies that use them, they don't make decks. Um they, you know, they enter their QuickBooks password or their Stripe password or their Braintree password. 
we do a bunch of analysis, we rank them relative to public and private companies in the system. And then we just say like, here you are, here's yeah. what the data shows. And now of course, you know, if they're like, this doesn't look right to me, they can go in and they can, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, the, they're not clarify in the right way. Yeah. Or they annotate something like, yeah, we had a bad Q3, but like, don't judge the business that way. So like, you know, a voiceover is important, but the data tells a lot of the story. And I think our investors on our system are trained to really value the data too. And so like the kinds of companies that succeed, um, on hum, um, are companies where they're just like, these are the facts. I want investors to understand the facts. Let's do a deal that's fair and let's like move on and build a great business. I think the kinds of companies that are scared of something like hum are the Theranoses where they're like, eh, the yeah. facts, facts might not be very good here. Don't what's interesting is, you know, having accumulated thousands now of, of companies mm -hmm. where like the facts tell a great story, it's a pretty interesting community of companies. And that's what drives investors, whether they're sovereign wealth funds or insurance companies to us, because they're like, you know, I can invest in the private markets the old way, you know, allocate my money to a fund, get quarterly reports, cross my fingers, hope for the best. Or I can see real-time information on my portfolio companies. My companies have a bunch of other investors that are interested in them because their data tells a great story. So the refinancing risk or the additional capital raising risk is lower. Um, so we didn't talk much about the investor side of the equation, but I, I think there's a lot of transparency that drives investors who actually have low cost capital or an advantage in the kind of capital they have yeah. to a platform like ours and yeah. investors who are just looking to, you know, hide a higher cost of capital behind really confusing terms. They struggle on a place like hum. But what's interesting is, you know, we get great companies on hum that attracts great investors, that low cost, straightforward access to capital attracts more great companies to hum. So there's very much this sort of flywheel where, you know, the Theranoses don't like to play ball and the investors that are looking to nickel and dime companies don't like to play ball, but everyone who's like transparent and honest and clear, like they're all totally happy to play ball because they get a cut wow. out. The Dude, that's, that's a brilliant angle. I haven't thought about either creating an ecosystem where a, a, a process that incentivizes what you're looking for. So it's incentivizing the transparency. It's trans it's incentivizing good ideas. It's incentivizing, honest investors like that's cool because the process like you said the 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 flywheel itself is going to naturally gravitate those companies investors in and naturally yeah. push out the ones you don't look for just by the process you do you design yeah absolutely wow freaking love it all right if you can't tell i'm geeking out over your idea this is awesome <laughs> um all right let's get to our lightning round questions so we got five questions we've asked every founder okay. we're gonna start with number one and for this one, let's put on not the investor hat, let's put on the organizational leader hat. So if you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, think of it like a billboard in the office, what would that message be? Just transparency, just like put the data out there. People are sometimes scared of like, oh, if I put the data out there, it might get interpreted wrong. Like we ran this test in the signup experience and like, you know, the data is not great yet, but it will be great. It's like, just doesn't matter. Put the data out there. And then I think a lot of trust comes from that. Like if you're able to say, I ran a test and it failed, but here's why I think it's going to succeed. Like that's such a um, yeah. humbling, you know, message for a product leader, let's say to put out there. So I think it's just transparency, put the data out there and that creates the culture that, that we want. Heck yeah. All right. Question number two. What is the single best advice you've personally gotten about growing your business? And also what was the worst? Oh man. Um, uh, 
there's a guy I used to work with when I was at DFJ named Bill Krauss, who, um, who was the CEO of 3Com and is just kind of a, a storied Silicon Valley executive. He, um, he gave me a tool, which I have back there on my whiteboard somewhere, but I, it comes from somewhere else, but I always call it the Krauss matrix. And it's basically, there's four quadrants and in only one of the quadrants should you fire someone. It's basically, I'm not engaged and I don't have the skills, fire. In all the other quadrants, there's there's coaching. Like if you're super engaged, you don't have the skills, train. If you're not that engaged, but you do have the skills, coach, motivate, coach. Yeah. right? So, I mean, just looking at the world is like, you know, there's a whole kind of canvas out there and really you should be developing people instead of just saying, no, 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 is a, is, it's been enormously helpful for me. Um, I think the worst advice I've gotten, um, that's a good question. I, there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot of pundits when you're building a business, like you should follow this business model. Your business should work in this way. Like just haven't thought about the problem that hard. Yeah. So I think that's where a lot of the bad advice comes from, but hopefully you can just kind of ignore that and cut through the noise. Yep. Love it. Question number three. What currently causes you the most stress or worry leading your organization? Ooh, that's a great question. Honestly, it's balancing uh, work and family. I have, I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old. I try to finish work at 5 p.m. every day. Like, that means I have to wake up early, but like, you know, I'm trying to like have a separation in my life. It's super, super hard. So I think that, that creates the most stress. Yeah, yeah. What, what helps? Or you, what helps are you, are you yeah, are you at square one with it? Like, man, I, I, don't, I haven't figured that out yet. Or have you found a few things that are starting to help you with that? No, I mean, like, I'm really rigorous about my schedule. So, like, every minute of time during the workday is blocked out. Every minute of family time is, like, blocked out. Do not schedule a meeting over this time, no matter what. It still gets ignored sometimes. So, like, I'm sure. working on that. But, um, no, I think it's just about being rigorous and just trying as best as you can to make commitments you can actually keep to your family, to your customers, you know, to your teammates, et cetera, which is an ongoing effort. I don't, I don't see that ever becoming easy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a moving target, man. You know, I think that's why we – it's something you, you – we like to think about, like, balance, where it goes a little left, it goes a little right. Like, that's always when you ride a bike. You're not perfectly centered, you know? And it's, can I, can I flex with a little more family? My family needs me a little more in this season. The business needs me a little more, but you don't ever go too far one way. Yep. You know, it's, it's, it's that dance. So uh, beautiful. Number four, what is your BHAG for this business? The big, hairy, audacious goal. Oh man. I mean, it's make capital allocation. Perfect. No bias, totally transparent. Anyone who wants money goes to kayak, clicks, share my QuickBooks, gets every option the entire market could could offer it's super clear yeah um, i think if we do that the world is just an incredibly um, efficient place where you know people aren't toiling away hoping the world understands their ideas like either the idea works or it doesn't you know stuff gets invented faster we cure cancer faster um, Hell yeah let's work. go i like it i'm excited i'm excited to see that dream come true Question number five. This is our uh, creative, fun, kind of personal question. So answer it however you will. If you could hop into a DeLorean, I'm referencing back to the future here. Okay. You get to go back to your past. Not necessarily there to change any events or anything, but you do get to pass along one message to that younger version of yourself. When would you go back in your past, and what would you pass along to that younger you? Oh, like the five-year-old me, I'd be like, be gracious and don't be anxious. That would have changed my life. I didn't even know what anxiety was until 
um, I started seeing a therapist and taking Lexapro. I had no idea. I like just thought this was normal, you know? And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, you know, life is so much better now that I'm less anxious. I have like a sounding board to really like, you know, organize what thoughts I need to dive deep into and which ones I can just kind of let pass. So, I mean, had I known that when I was five versus when I was like 27, 28, yes. Yes. I would have a totally different life. Yes, man. Same, same reason I started seeing a therapist. I went as far as I could at first, even understanding I had anxiety. It took me until my late twenties that someone was like, you know, that's anxiety, right? I was like, really? I didn't even know that's what this was. That's been in the background of my life for so long totally. and beginning to have a life that is not dominated by that was a total game changer. So uh, I, I feel the same way. I don't know what age I would have gone back, but same thing. Hey buddy, don't gotta be so anxious. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, this has been awesome, Blair. Thank you so much for making time out of your busy schedule to share your wisdom, your story uh, with us, your perspective. It's been uh, truly enriching. So I thank you for that. Yeah, man, this was great. I appreciate the time. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.